Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. If you know this, uh, but it's cold outside, and I hate it. It's also cold inside uh, because power's gone out several times over the course of this last week, um, and uh, currently our heat won't kick back on. But for a nominal fee, you can sit closer to the little space heaters that are spread out around the room. It all depends on how much you give, and then we can decide how close to the heater you can be, sort of thing. So. You know, anyways, um, man, I, it's like negative 1,000 degrees outside is how it feels all of a sudden. In fact, um, we were uh, FaceTiming with one of the sister-in-laws uh, yesterday in Atlanta, and she was sitting in her uh, backyard, and you could see all the beautiful fall colors, and I hate her. <laughs> I mean, I hate that. Um, it's just, it's not, anyways, I'm done complaining for the most part. I'll complain a little bit more in a few moments. Um, we're in uh, the fifth week of our series going through the book of Proverbs. Uh, we titled it Asking for a Friend, um, uh, Wise Answers to Tough Questions. In fact, we sent out um, a survey this week that we're going to get to in just a few moments, um, but I wanted to know what you thought about a few questions. And so um, this week we're looking at the issue of wealth and poverty. Um, and so, here was the question uh, that we sent out. The first one was this. Um, can wealth be a sign of God's blessing? 95% of you said yes. Or at least you hoped the answer was yes. Um, 95% of you said yes. The second question was this. Can poverty be a sign of God's discipline? Of course, you know God never disciplines. I mean, he's like a good parent. He never disciplines. This is interesting. 84% of you were brave enough to say yes to that one, which meant that 16% of you said, oh, no, he would never, ever, would he ever use poverty as a way of bringing chastening in our lives. Uh, And and the last question was this one. Um, Are wealthy and rich the same thing? Apparently, a bunch of you have been reading Robert Kiyosaki's books or something, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. 92% said, no, they aren't the same thing. Well, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, we were so poor, Kitri and I, when we first got married. Really, to be technical, we were so broke 
Um, and I made certain choices uh, early in life in terms of vocational ministry um, that made it abundantly clear that that was not the pathway to wealth and riches, uh, but it was the path that we said God was calling us to vocational ministry. We were so poor. Uh, you probably heard these before. Some of your, your mama was so poor. I'm just going to leave in the context of Kitri and I, because um, I don't want to talk about your mama. Um, uh, we were so poor um, when we got married. We got married just for the rice. We were so poor, we ate cereal with a fork to save on milk. That's how poor we were. Um, we were so poor, the ducks threw bread at us. That's, that's how poor we were. We were so poor, we had to play dungeons or dragons. We couldn't play both. Uh, and um, no, We were so poor that a bro burglar broke into our house and all he got was experience. That's how poor we were. Like, it was not, not good. Um, I want to ask you this question. Is it virtuous to be impoverished? Is it virtuous to be impoverished? That may sound like a weird question to you, but that happens to be because of the particular church age that you live in, and it happens to be the particular stream of the church that you maybe have been a part of in your lifetime. But in the early monastic movement, in the early church, in the Catholic church, it was absolutely considered by many to be a virtue. Poverty, in and of itself, a virtue, a Christ-like character. In other words, and this is literally the sense, possessing material things was carnal and ungodly in and of itself. And so there was probably no one who believed this more fervently than Giordani Bernardone, or St. Francis of Assisi, maybe, as you have heard of him before. In fact, he made specific vows of obedience, chastity, and poverty. I want to be clear, not poverty as in I don't own anything, but impoverished. In fact, he was so in love with the idea of poverty that he wrote some beautiful poems to lady poverty. But it wasn't always that way. And I've noticed often people who are enamored with poverty are people who have experienced wealth. They have the luxury of doing something else rather than they were born into it. And he was not born into it. He was born into an extremely wealthy family. His mom was from a wealthy family. His father was from a wealthy family. His father was a silk merchant, spent lots of time in France, loved all things French, the opulence and all of it, um, had much land that he owned, and he had made a great living for himself. And everything that we know about St. Francis in his early life as a teenager and a young man, he loved to party. He, he, was, he was the classic rich kid, the trust fund baby. He had everything he wanted and he enjoyed everything that he wanted. His friends were rich friends. They did all of the pleasurable things they could think of to do with the resources they had. Crusades had started, and he was sent off to war, as most wealthy young men were, in order to um, earn his own stripes, in order to come up in the world to become a man. He actually got taken as a prisoner in war, spent a year as a prisoner of war, returned home, and then went to war again. When he came back that time, he was not the same person. Something had shifted for him. 
He was in town one day selling some of the silks that his father had um, to local stores, and he ran into a beggar on the street. At first, he ignored the beggar. He went about his business, and then later he returned um, and was moved in his heart and took all of the proceeds from his father's sales and gave them to the beggar. He gave everything he had. His friends mocked him for doing it, and his father was furious. He knew his father was going to be furious, so he had not gone home. He went to hide in a cave. He hid in a cave for several days. His father finally found him, beat him soundly, drug him home, tied him up, and threw him in the family dungeon, because we all have the family dungeon. He spent quite a bit of time there until his father went away on business again, and his mother released him from his captivity, and he went on to become St. Francis of Assisi. Now, here's the interesting thing. He didn't just believe that um, living a modest life was important or not owning material things was important. He believed abject poverty in and of itself had its own value. It was said of him that he was envious of anyone who was poorer than he. In fact, he was known, he just had a rough tunic when they wrote um, the rules for the order of the Franciscan monks, the original order. Um, you could only have one tunic. It had to be of rough material, both on the inside and the exterior. He had a belt, a rope that he tied around it, and he had a pair of trousers that he wore. If he came across a beggar who had clothing that was worse than his, he would exchange with the beggar. He always wanted to be the poorest of the poor. In fact, he wrote a song to what he refers to as Lady Poverty. He personified poverty as an entity. Here's what he wrote. But, oh, my dear Lord Jesus, have pity upon me and upon my Lady Poverty, for I am consumed with love for her and can know no rest without her. Thou knowest all this, my Lord, thou who didst fill me with love of her. Remember, O Lord Jesus, that poverty is so much the queen of virtues that thou, the Lord, forsaking the dwelling place of the angels, didst descend upon the earth in order to espouse her in love everlasting. Oh, who would not love the lady poverty? Can I see a show of hands and answer that question? I'm just, who would not love the lady poverty above all things? I beseech thee, O most poor Jesus, that for thy sake it may be the mark of me and mine to all eternity, to possess no thing of our own under the sun, but to live destitute and upon the goods of others so long as this vile body lasts. And everybody said, Amen. I see several of you like, mm, I ain't saying amen to that. I'm not going to do it. Not going to do it. He viewed poverty in and of itself as a virtue. Here's what's interesting to me, and you see it in the last line here, but to live destitute, receiving from the goods that others have in order to do so. That I could only live in this way if I were able to beg of you, the person who worked and retained resources and purchased items, and I could beg of you and you could give to me. I'm actually still dependent on people who are willing to work. It was actually made a mandate in the Franciscan order that you begged for your food so that you could relate 
to the poor. It was considered a virtue. But is poverty in and of itself actually a virtue? <laughs> I believe that's my mom answering. <laughs> so glad she believes that. Uh, which brings me to rich folk and all the boos and the hisses that go with it. Uh, let me ask you a question. Is it okay to be rich if you live south of Richmond? Is that all right? I know you guys have been listening to that bad music. If you don't know the reference, Oliver Anthony wrote the song. He'd written several songs, actually, but he was unknown until this one came out. And when this one came out, talking about all those rich men north of Richmond, all those politicians who want all the power and have all the money and how they've ruined our lives and they've made me destitute because of their craving for wealth, and I'm in the situation I'm in because of what they have done, man, it struck a chord in our country. It, in fact, it was so pronounced that in the span of three months, he went from nobody to the top of the... Here's how popular... It's going to blow your mind. All the Swifties in the room, just get over it. He beat out Taylor Swift for the number one spot on the music charts, Billboard. Like, I mean, this song took off. He was shocked, surprised. I think happy by the newfound fame. The song's been downloaded hundreds of millions of times. And, and here's the problem in the song, what he's describing is the situation that he's in that so many feel like they're in all over our country. And yet how he is making $45,000 a day off of royalties. Is he one of the rich men now? You see the quandary, right? That all of a sudden, because of the country that he lives in, and because of the liberties that we have, and because of a free market society, he can go from being somebody who's living in a 23-foot trailer with a tarp stretched over the top on a piece of land that he still owes $60,000 for, but he paid $95,000, and now he can go from that to making $45,000 a day. Just to be clear, that's $1.2 million a month. How many of you would like to make $1.2 million one month in your life? How many of you are making two point or one point two million? I just I want to see. Okay, just Chloe. Okay, um, uh, one point two million a month uh, over the past three months, and now he's got a real situation. What if he decides that he's not going to live in the twenty-three foot camper now, since they're about to have another baby, and he wants to build a house? Uh, you're not one of us anymore. You don't understand us anymore. No matter how small the house was, if he takes some of that wealth that has been generated because of the place that he lives and he begins to invest it in things that matter to him, he is going to be railed for it in a heartbeat. Uh, you're not a commoner anymore because the goal, the virtue is actually to be in, the, when you live in a culture that promotes the idea that you're always a victim at someone else's hands, when you begin to crawl out of that, people will not let you do it. The virtue itself is actually victimhood. The virtue itself is to be destitute. But is that a biblical idea? According to Scripture, wealth and riches are not the issue. 
In fact, in Genesis chapter 13, verse 2, one of the saints of old, one of the fathers of the faith, a guy named Abram, who later becomes Abraham, is described in this way. Abram was very rich. It doesn't give any qualification. Like, he wasn't a mean rich. He was also super generous. Like, we feel like if we talk about being rich, you've got to describe all of the caveats. But it just says he was very rich in livestock and also silver and gold. Or in Genesis 26, 12 and 13, when Isaac planted his crops that year, he harvested a hundred times more grain than he planted, for the Lord blessed him, and he became a very rich man. I don't know if he was north of Richmond or not, I mean, like, but became a very rich man, and his wealth continued to grow. In fact, when you look into the Proverbs around this idea of wealth and prosperity. Here's what it has to say. Proverbs 10, the blessing of the Lord makes a person rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Some of you know that having material possessions or material wealth can also come with lots of sorrow, but the kind that the Lord brings has no sorrow with it. Or Proverbs 13, verse 22, good people leave an inheritance to their grandchildren. Hear that, mom and dad? Good. Proverbs 19, 14, houses and wealth are inherited from fathers. You have to have something left to give something away when that season comes. In the scriptures, the issue of wealth does not seem to be an issue of inherent evil in and of itself. And the scriptures interchange the words wealth and riches. How many of you would prefer to be rich over being poor? Oh, how many of you would prefer to tell the truth instead of lying? Like, I know that Tevia thought that was true. You know, Fiddler on the Roof, the scene where he's in the barn and he's collecting all the milk and whatnot. He's like, why do I have to do all this work? And he's just talking to the Lord in prayer. And he says, I know you made many, many, many poor people. And I realize there's no shame in being poor, but there's no great honor in it either. If I were a rich man, all day long I'd be bum. If I were a wealthy man, hey! I would, okay, just kidding, we're not. Such a great song. I'm going to go watch it again today. What's amazing, though, to me in the song is he, he starts by saying, Lord, what's, what would be so bad if you just gave me a small fortune? I don't know how much a small fortune is, but he goes on to describe what he would do with it. He would build a beautiful home, not out in the country, right in the middle of town so everybody could see it. And then in his house, and this is how fast wealth can distract us. In my house that I'm going to build, it's going to be a massive home with many, many rooms in it. Okay, I can see many rooms. Great. You're probably going to want to house people, have guests over. But then he says, he says, I'd build one staircase going up that was beautiful. I'd build an even longer staircase coming down. And then I'd build one more going nowhere just for show. <laughs> what? And you're wondering why the Lord won't give you money? Like, what are you going to build a bridge to nowhere next? I mean, like, oh, sorry. It, like, this is the problem with wealth as we begin to think about it in terms of selfish 
ambition, self-promotion. Mm, tell me about that. All right. So, so if there's nothing inherently evil about wealth, then how can I get my hands on some of it? Right? If it isn't right or wrong to have resources or to not have resources. But first, I want to give a couple of definitions. And here's the reason I want to give these definitions, because one, uh, towards the end here, we're going to actually come back and revisit a couple of things. But we are specifically right now talking about economic wealth and poverty. Here's the definition of economic poverty. The state or condition in which one lacks financial resources for the minimum standards of living. For example, you have to buy Sitka gear instead of Kuyu. You had to buy a Skidu instead of a Polaris. You know, those, no, it's not even close. It's, it's things like basic needs for food, for clean water, for clothing, for housing, for medical care. It's the definition of poverty, economic poverty that we're using. Here's the definition of wealth, economic wealth. An accumulation of valuable economic resources that can be measured in terms of monetary value, determined by taking the total market value of all assets owned, and here's the real challenge, and then subtracting all debts. When I read through the definition, I'm like, I'm not doing too bad, and I subtract my debts, and I'm like, oh, I'm in trouble. Um, right, but that's the definition of wealth. And here's the problem with wealth. Wealth is elusive. It's also invasive in our lives. A few things are easier to obsess over than material things. We think about them a lot. I, I think about things that I purchase, and I, this will make my life easier. And then I find myself thinking about it all the time. In fact, um, I recently bought, don't judge me, another Shelter Logic shelter to park my car in because we parked my wife's car in the garage because I'm a good husband. And sometimes I need to borrow it and I want it warm. Um, uh, but, so I bought this Shelter Logic deal. We put it all up. I put my stuff in it. I parked my car in the Shelter Logic thing because it's going to make my life easier. I don't have to go out and scrape a bunch of snow off of it every time I go outside. I went down to Homer this last weekend, give my mom and dad a hand getting their boat out of the water because winter's coming. You got to take care of all that stuff and you got to, you know, drain all the water out of it. You don't want it to get ruined, blah, 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 blah. And we're on our way back from Homer and I get this text message from my wife. Super sorry to send this bad news. Which is never, like, I didn't get the picture right away. All I got was super sorry to send this bad news. Dot, 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 dot. I'm like, what is it? And then I got this. I knew immediately what it was when I saw it. You can just see um, barely underneath there, that's my car inside that little red circle. Oh my goodness. I... The rest of the way home, just barely driving over the speed limit, I was thinking, the windshield's done in my car. All the work I did to make life a little bit easier is now a whole lot more work than it was just a little while ago. And I'm thinking about the loss of the shelter logic. I'm wondering if I can sue them. Is that a Christian thing to do? I'm wondering, is my car going to be drivable? Like All of those things are racing. Who's going to help me get it out of there? Like I don't know how I'm going to get it out of there. If I can get it out of there. There's just one more picture here. I just want you to see. There it is. Yeah. <sighs> Here, here's the thing. 
It never ceases to amaze me how much work our conveniences can be. You know what I mean? I, um, I, did, a, I, I did a Hey Siri search, oops, last night. Um, I said, uh, how much time before modern appliances came about did people spend doing household chores? You know how much time people spent doing laundry before we had washing machines? I know some of you are like, haven't we always had them? No, right after the fall, they got taken away, and we just re-got them in like the 1920s. Like, um, how long? Roughly 20 hours a week. Each load of laundry took four hours to do. Uh, Now we have washers and dryers. It takes a matter of minutes, and you have so much free time now, don't you? No, because you filled it with something else. It's amazing how our conveniences can consume us. In fact, at our house, in the span of one month, and this was not too long ago, our dishwasher, our stove, our refrigerator, and our washer and dryer all went out in one month. I'm like, girls, it's time to step up. Dad's going to work. Mom's managing you. No. Uh, like, it's just like our conveniences can actually consume us. We don't actually have more time because of them. We find other ways to be consumed. The life of ease is elusive, but it's also expensive. It's, it's elusive because often those conveniences consume us. But what I found is that um, it's actually really expensive because I allow every marketing campaign to consume me. It doesn't matter whether you're listening to music on Pandora and the ads pop up if you can't afford the you know, version that doesn't have ads or if you're watching TV, but it's like every ad that comes up is geared towards one thing, letting you know that you should not be satisfied with whatever it is that you currently have. You got the wrong truck. You got, we had one come on just a couple of days ago. Um, it was a washer and dryer ad, um, and it is our exact same washer and dryer that we currently have, except for the lights are prettier colors and it can pair with your Bluetooth on your phone. And my girls were like, we need to get that. And I said, why? It wasn't even the Bluetooth feature. It was, look at the colors on the display. And then I realized, I think I'm just like that, just with different things. No, I think I definitely need a new snow machine. I need new gear. I need a new rifle. I need a new vehicle. Like I've realized that I become a consumer so quickly if my focus is on me, on my desires. Which brings me to more. 80, 30, and 20%. Been a lot of surveys done over the years. How much money does a person need to make to be happy? Some of them have said somewhere around 70 to $75,000. When you make more than that, you aren't actually any happier with your life. But they did a survey here recently, and they asked Americans, of course, specifically, um, how many believe more money would make you happier? And 80% said that more money would make them happier. How many of you would say, I totally agree with that. More money would make me happier. (laughs) Here's here's the next thing you need to know. 30% of that 80% currently make between $75,000 and $149,000 a year and they believe more money will make them happier. In fact, extensive research has been done on how much people believe they need in terms of percentage to be fulfilled or content. 
It actually doesn't matter whether you're talking about personal finances or whether you're talking about an organization. When they ask people, how much more would you need to make in order to be content? 20% more is the number, no matter how much they currently make. They could make a million dollars a year, but 20% more would let me do all the things I want to do. You know why that is? It's because we tend to spend all the way up to the limits of what we have. And if we just had a little more, we'd actually be happy. It's also true of churches. When you ask churches, how much more would you need in terms of financial resource in order to plant another church, to send resources out? 20% more. How many more people would you need in order to plant another church? 20% more than what we currently have. It's amazing. We believe just a little more will make us happy, will make us fulfilled, will give us purpose, will allow us to accomplish our goals. And when we get there, it'll be 20% more. I'll make an observation. Although being poor is exhausting, being wealthy can be really expensive in our lives. Having stuff, having resources, can actually be exhausting in and of itself and extremely expensive in other areas of life. Now, Proverbs is a book of principles, not promises. If you believe it's a book of promises, you'll spend a lot of time really frustrated. In fact, one of the most popular principles that's claimed as a promise is this one, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. And yet you and I both know People who have trained up a child in the way they should go, and we departed from it. We went the other direction. It's because it's not a promise, it's a principle. And here's the problem. When you take it as a promise, every parent fails in some way. So you'll either blame yourself or you'll blame them. But God's outlining principles that generally work. And the same thing is true in this area of wealth and finance. In fact, Proverbs deals with the topic of wealth and finance a lot, and it deals with it for some really specific reasons. So I'm going to give you five super simple steps to becoming the wealthiest people ever, okay? Possibly. Um, first one is this, Proverbs Principles of Wealth. Be diligent and persistent. Be diligent and persistent. Proverbs 28 is a chapter full of financial advice for those who are interested. Proverbs 28, verses 19 and 20 say this, A hard worker has plenty of food, but a person who chases fantasies ends up in poverty. The person who wants quick riches will get into trouble. Now, I'll avoid talking about Bitcoin now, I'll just scoot it back a little bit further. How many in the room are willing to confess that you bought Iraqi dinar after the war? <laughs> really, only me and Joel. Uh, I saw a wife point at a husband, so I won't call him out. Um, uh, like, lots of my family. I've got family in Tennessee who still have closets full of Iraqi dinar, the Iraqi money, because the war was clearly the reason that the money didn't have any value. Once the war was over, it was going to skyrocket, and we were going to become wealthy overnight. I can remember where we were living, and I took one month's mortgage payment, and I bought Iraqi dinar with it. I did all the work. I made sure they were sequential serial numbers so I wasn't getting ripped off. I had the black light so you could see. I mean, it was the ultimate opportunity. I had never even done any research 
into money markets or into currency exchange or any of that. I just knew this was it. I'm also still waiting 17 years later for this to be it um, because it clearly was not. I don't even know if it's worth the same amount it was when I actually bought it. What we discovered is that the reason that the currency was so devalued in Iraq had nothing to do with the war. It had to do with generations of warfare in a country like that. Like, I just bought it and it's worthless. He's saying get rich quick schemes, they actually lead to poverty and most often because they're motivated by the wrong things. The goal is to get rich rather than to build wealth for a purpose. Second principle is this. Be diligent and persistent. Be honest and ethical. Be honest and ethical. This is reiterated over and over again in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 28, verses 6 and 8. Better to be poor and honest than to be dishonest and rich. If you had to pick between the two, rich and dishonest or poor and honest, pick poor and honest. Income from charging high interest rates or extorting people will end up in the pocket of someone who is kind to the poor. God has the capacity, he has the tendency to take the wealth that the wicked store up for themselves and redistribute it so that it meets the needs of the impoverished. What you find over and over and over again in the book of Proverbs is that the issue of wealth and wealth generation is directly related to the issue of generosity and meeting the needs of the poor. Which brings me to the third thing, or be generous and thoughtful. Generosity is hardwired into this issue of wealth and resources from God's perspective. In fact, Proverbs 28, verse 27 says this, Whoever gives to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to poverty will be cursed. This is a really big deal to God. That you and I would not ignore the needs of the needy. That we would be willing to take the resources we've been entrusted with, the resources that we've worked for, and we would be willing to meet the needs of others with those resources. And if you ignore the needs of the poor, you should not expect to experience blessing. From God in this area. Fourth principle is this, be diligent and persistent, be honest and ethical, be generous and thoughtful, and be humble and helpful. Humility is hardwired into God's economy. Proverbs 18 verses 11 and 12 say this, the rich think of their wealth as a strong defense they imagine it to be a high wall of safety. Haughtiness goes before destruction. Humility precedes honor. Remember, he isn't saying that the rich are evil. When I read a passage like that, I'm like, yeah, that's what rich people are like. He's not saying that's what rich people are like. He says rich people that are like this will experience humbling from the Lord. Proverbs 22, verse 2 says why this is a big deal. The rich and poor have this in common. The Lord made 
them both. If you were St. Francis, you would look down on the rich because it's their wealth that has corrupted them. You would look down on those who have resource even though you need their resource in order to make it by. It never ceases to amaze me that certain um, organizations, I won't name one specifically, but I've had lots of conversation over the years with them, but they will take students and they will have an experience over a period of time with this organization where they get to just pour their lives out. They get to go on missions trips. They get to learn every day. They get to spend every day in the scriptures. And then when they leave that organization and return to their hometowns, roughly 75% of them will never plug into a local church. You know why? Because the local church just doesn't get it. They don't understand the level of passion I have for the gospel, of doing everything I can for every minute of the day to serve Jesus. And my local church doesn't do that. Those people just go to work in factories and do their jobs every single day. And yet they fail to realize that it is the hard work of those individuals that made that lifestyle possible for you, period. There isn't a mutual respect and honor. And what he's describing here is you need to understand the rich and the poor have one thing in common in particular. They were both made by God. They were both loved by God. They were both died for by Christ, that you are actually in the exact same position in the eyes of God. Humility and helpful. And the fifth one is this, be content and grateful. Paul describes this often in his life. Paul, a man who apparently had resources at one point, lost them along the way because of imprisonment and beating and preaching the message of the gospel. But Paul says, I've learned whatever circumstance I've been in. And he describes his circumstances to us. He says, whatever circumstance I'm in, I've learned the art of being content there. Because chasing wealth, chasing riches is a recipe for discontent. So be content and grateful. Proverbs 28, verse 25, greed causes fights. I know it comes as a shock, but parent much? Like, greed causes fighting. Trusting the Lord leads to prosperity. Or Proverbs 23, 4 and 5, don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be wise enough to know when to quit. In the blink of an eye, wealth disappears, for it will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. Anybody ever had that experience? Man, I, I think this is really interesting. He says, don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. In other words, if you do, you won't have energy left for things that actually matter more. You'll lose things that are actually more valuable, that are worth more if you wear yourself out in the pursuit of riches. Which brings me to show me you're wealthy, or hashtag say you're rich without saying you're rich. When our son Caleb was young, we made the decision that as soon as he was able and I was able, I would take him on missions trips with me. I've had the opportunity to spend time in lots of the worst places you can imagine in the world. 
Often people ask me, um, have you been to see these sites in Thailand or in India or in Sri Lanka or other places? And I'm like, no, I've never been to the Taj because I spend all of my time in slum communities when I'm in those places. That's why I'm there is to work with organizations and with people who are in some of the most destitute places. I'll never forget the first time we took my son to India with us, and he got to experience this abject poverty, this absolute lack of resources. And we were staying at a boys' orphanage. About 300 boys were there, and they literally had a box with some supplies that were their personal supplies in it. And then they had a grass mat that laid out on a concrete floor, and that's where they slept, and this was all of their possessions. And we were staying at the compound where they were living at, and um, each morning at about 5.30 in the morning, if I remember right, all 300 boys were outside of our door hollering for our son to come out and play with them. Kalib! Kalib! all morning long. And so Caleb would get up, he'd go out, he'd play and play and play. And then we'd go out and we would visit leper colonies where they were just worshiping Jesus with reckless abandon. A level of joy and intensity I don't hardly see anywhere else. And yet people who had experienced some of the worst things you can imagine. And we would go into slum communities on the railroad tracks and on the rivers and by the sewer systems. And over and over again, my son would make the same observation. He would say, you know, these people have nothing, and yet they are full of joy. My friends back home have everything, and they're miserable. Nailed it. And so here recently, I got to take my daughter on her first trip with me. We went down to Peru with a group of students um, and uh, several of their parents, uh, along with the youth ministry, and she got to see a lot of these same things. My daughter's wired a little bit different. Um, she loves animals, and so I would ask her, how does she feel? And she's like, there are so many cats without homes. I'm like, but what about the children, right? Like, and, and, and she saw all of the same things. And the last night of our time together there in Iquitos, um, the team got together and did some debriefing. And I experienced this over and over again. As the students are going around and describing their experience, they're describing poverty, right? These people don't have anything. We would walk into churches and they would show us where not to step because you would step through the floor and then make your way down into the river, which you did not want to make your way down into. Like we're worried about the heat not being on right now, but they were worried about the building falling over if they jumped during worship, right? Like, and they would see over and over again people with nothing and yet full of joy, but they would use the language of poverty when they were talking about material things, but they wouldn't use the language of wealth when they were talking about relational things. And so it kind of made our way around the room and it got to me and I said, I want to describe something to you. I actually discovered it in a book um, several years ago called When Helping Hurts, a book written by a couple of guys, Fickert and Colbert. And, and they wrote the book to describe um, poverty in four different areas of life. And they said, often we have a tendency in the West, as the church in particular, to go into places that are experiencing material poverty and solve the problem for them by bringing material things. And yet we actually create more poverty in other areas by doing so. 
And so they described in the Garden of Eden the genesis of poverty because poverty actually didn't exist before sin came into the world in the Garden of Eden. And they described four areas of broken relationship in Genesis or poverty in Genesis. The area of relationship to work. You were actually created to be productive, to be a contributor, to work, but now work is going to work against you. By the sweat of your brow, you will till the ground now, and it'll kick up thorns, and it'll be hard for you to work. There's actually poverty in your relationship to work, and there's poverty in your relationship with others. There's now going to be conflict between you and your spouse, let alone everyone else in the world. And then this poverty in the area of relationship with yourself, you're going to be dealing with guilt and shame because of sin. You're going to forget who you are in this new world. And then poverty in relationship to God and how we engage with him. And what these students were describing was poverty in a very narrow vein, the vein of material things. But they were actually describing wealth in the area of relationship with each other. Wealth in the area of relationship with God. In many cases, because of the lack of material distractions. I'll never forget hearing the story of New Delhi when they were leveling a slum community, but they weren't just going to level the slum community. They had actually created high-rise housing for everyone in the slum. Running water, doors on your homes, multiple floors you could live on, brand new housing, and the people in the community hated it. They hated it because they couldn't figure out for the life of them how they're going to experience the wealth of relationship and community that they had with each other if they live on different floors. They immediately took all the doors off of the rooms just so their neighbor could walk into their house anytime they wanted to. So you could see my kids running up and down the hallway. But there's actually a wealth that they possessed even in the midst of material poverty that they considered more valuable to them. What I told the students is I said, if you'll begin to think about wealth and poverty in a much broader sense, what you will discover when you go to places like Iquitos, Peru, when you go to places like slum communities in India, is you'll discover that they have something to offer you also. And you are not just the great Western savior who shows up. They actually have wealth to offer you, even as you bring help and aid in the area of material things to them and it will change the relationship with wealth and poverty for you forever. Jeffrey Sachs, one of the leading economists in the world for a long time, wrote a book called The End of Poverty. If you want to read it, you should get it on audiobook because it's super long. But his basic contention is that if every government in the world would kick in somewhere around um, $194 billion more annually towards relief and aid around the world, that kicking in more money would solve the problem of what he defined as extreme poverty by, wait for it, 2025. Just so you know, we're not going to make it. Because the issue of poverty and wealth is much broader than money. And the ways that we go about dealing with it are actually lined out for us in the book of Proverbs. God does not avoid talking about money. He's not afraid of wealth. He's also not afraid of poverty. He's inviting you to consider how you partner with him and what he's doing in the world. I'm going to invite you to stand with us. Here's my question I want to leave us with today.
do our resources possess us or do we possess our resources? It's amazing how fast your things can take ownership of you. It's worth pausing every now and then and asking how much of my time and energy am I expending in the pursuit of wealth and the pursuit of things? Have my things taken ownership of me or do I own them to be used for the purposes God has intended them for, to bring glory to him and for the good of others? So Jesus, that's our prayer, that in this coming week, you would cause us to think differently that we would acknowledge and recognize that in this area you've called us to be humble and you've called us to be helpful. You've called us to view things from your vantage point. I ask that you would increase the resources of your people as we increase our capacity to meet the needs of those around us. And we ask it all in your name, Jesus, for your glory. Amen. Just want to remind you, um, uh, this Sunday, hey, there's lights. This Sunday and next are our Generosity Sundays. It's your opportunity to partner with us as we meet local needs. It's in the drop-down menu um, on the app uh, under giving. There's also a box in the back that you can drop those resources in. But we fill that account up every year, and then we distribute those resources to real needs right here in our community each year. So, hey, Church on the Rock, God bless you. You are dismissed. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.